um, with Gary and Dina Pate and um, spend time there until Saturday, coming back Saturday, and Lord willing, I'll be here Sunday, um, once again, walking through Revelation. But just be praying um, this week and uh, prayed about it. The Lord gave me peace and uh, opened the door and uh, excited about what God is going to do. And I'll just kind of be honest, I was bummed about 2020 and all of our mission things scrubbed and nothing. And uh, then this opportunity presented itself and the door opened and uh, had to walk through it and just trust in the Lord in it. But as, as you find yourself in Revelation 3, welcome to week 8 of our series that has us walking through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have spent the last five weeks unpacking five of Christ's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is, of course, modern-day Turkey. And I, I know that some are here, and basically your thought process is, when are we going to get to the good part of this book? You know, when are we going to get to the, um, you know, the, the harlots and the dragons and... Um, you know, the, the, the beast, oh my, you know, when are we getting to, to those things? And, um, you know, why are we walking so slow through, through this part? And let me just say this, the reason that we are walking through the letters so slowly and so kind of intentionally is because I think just for the church of, just for these seven churches and for us, Jesus wanted them to be ready for the good parts or, or the bad parts so they wouldn't experience. And same for us. He wants us to be ready for the good parts so they won't be bad news for us. And the letters to the seven churches in Revelation are the only letters dictated by the risen Christ in the Bible. And they show us that Jesus pays attention to the local church. He cares what happens in the local church, meaning he cares what happens here. He is paying attention to what is going on here. He cares about what happens in the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. And this morning we come to the letter of Philadelphia, which is the faithful church. And when you think of Philadelphia, probably a lot of things come to mind. Many of you may be Philadelphia, um, the town Pennsylvania, founded by William Penn in 1682. Philadelphia also played an instrumental role in the American Revolution as a meeting place for uh, the Founding Fathers of the United States, who signed, of course, the Declaration of Independence, 1776, the Constitution, 1787. Philadelphia also was one of the nation's capitals in the Revolutionary War and served as a temporary U.S. capital while um, Washington, D.C. was under construction. Philadelphia is the birthplace of the United States Marine Corps. So, oorah from Brother Steve somewhere. Um, he is saying it. And uh, Philadelphia is also the home of many U.S. firsts, including first library, the first hospital, first medical school, first capital, first stock exchange, and the first zoo. But for me, when I think about Philadelphia, and I know I'm going to show my um, kind of my intellect here, and I apologize for that, but when I think about um, Philadelphia, I think Rocky Balboa. I mean, come on. That, that's, that is what is on my mind. Yo, Adrian, is my thought. I mean, so what we know is that through a series of movies, like 103 of them, uh, Rocky perseveres in all of them as the underdog. I mean, the 108-year-old champion of the world. And in Rocky 57, I think is what it was, or Rocky Balboa, Rocky tells his son that in order to succeed in life, and I've been working on my Rocky impression, so here you go. Never mind. No, I haven't. But, but Rocky says, it ain't about how hard you get hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And in a weird way, that was the theme of the first Philadelphia. That was the theme of the church at Philadelphia in Asia Minor. It was the youngest church of all the seven. And let me just give you a little background. 
Philadelphia was founded in 150 B.C. by King Attalus of Pergamum, whose nickname was Philadelphus, which means lover of a brother. This king resisted pressure from Rome to turn against his brother, so he refused to turn against his brother. And so Philadelphia kind of was, was named in his honor or in honor of his love for his brother. This city was located in a volcanic region, and it was great for produce, and, but it was terrible for um, or much known for earthquakes. In fact, in A.D. 70, there was an earthquake that so devastated Philadelphia that it took them years to recover. In fact, Rome had to basically remove their required payments of tribute for five years in order to help Philadelphia rebuild. And of course, the city became close to Rome because of that. Um, they gave their loyalty to Rome because Rome helped them out. And we don't know how this church was, was formed or who found this church. But what we do know is that this was a church that pleased Jesus. This church lasted longer than any of the other seven churches. This church lasted 12 or over 1,200 years. And it is the belief now that the fact that Christianity penetrated into India as early as it did was because this church sent out missionaries. So think about the beauty of that. So much good was going on in Philadelphia. So much so that it was only one of two churches that never got a correction from Jesus, that did not, um, were not condemned or rebuked um, by Christ. So what I want us to do is I want us to dive in this morning to the words of Christ, to the church at Philadelphia, this faithful church, and in the process pray that the Lord would allow us some 2,000 years later to be faithful, to be faithful. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. Revelation 3, 7 through 13, the words of Jesus, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you, Lord, and we have ears and Holy Spirit we want to hear. We want to hear, speak, we want to hear. And we don't want to just be hearers, Lord, we want to be doers of your word. Not just hearers only. Ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would make us, God, a faithful church. Lord, that we would respond to your faithfulness, God, and respond to your spirit in us by faithfulness, by love for you, by love for each other, by love for this world. Father, have your way in this time. Lord, speak, O oh God, for we're listening. Jesus, speak through your words. Holy Spirit, speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. 
Let me just say this. The Bible has a remarkable capacity to challenge and to overcome our misconceptions or our misperceptions about who we are, meaning that we are oftentimes inclined to think things that are not true concerning us, especially what God says of us. We're inclined to think of ourselves as orphans. And the Bible unfortunately tells us, or not unfortunately, gladly, um, amazingly tells us that we are adopted children of God. Not only did Jesus forgive us, he then brings us into the family. I think about that song we sang at the beginning, Adopted, and so many thoughts came to my mind. Tomorrow is our four-year gotcha day with Malachi. Four years that we got on a plane on the 18th. I preached on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's probably the worst message I've ever preached in my life because my mind was in India. My heart was in India, but God's grace got us through it. Um, we got there, and praise God, we, we got him. But even more than that is a picture of, of what God has done for us. You know, we are not orphans. We are not discarded. We have a father, and we have a home. We have a home. And then think about other misconceptions. We are inclined to see ourselves as guilty and we feel shame of our sin. Yet the word tells us that we're forgiven. The word tells us that we can be forgiven. When we feel too small or insignificant to make a difference, the word reminds us that God does not despise small things. The Bible actually tells us, the Bible agrees with us that we are small and insignificant, but it reminds us that we are indwelt by a not small and insignificant God. We are indwelt by an almighty God who is absolutely significant in all things. For those of us in this room who know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the question is this, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know who God says you are? And do you live like it? Do you live like children of God? Do you live like forgiven sons and daughters? Do you live knowing that the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you? Yes, what we know, this word absolutely convicts us. Every time I read this word, there is conviction there. And praise God, because conviction isn't a bad thing. Conviction is a gift. It's a gift. We treat it as a bad thing. I, I don't like coming to church and being convicted. Conviction is a gift of the Holy Spirit because he does not want you to stay where you are. The beauty of it, calling you to himself. But not only is this a word of conviction, this book also is a word of encouragement. In the midst of damaging thoughts, in the midst of difficult circumstances, this word gives us encouragement. And the letter to the church at Philadelphia was just that. It was filled with encouragement. This church was small it was insignificant. They were not highly regarded as far as according to the world's standards, but they served a mighty Savior who had all authority. And think about this. For Christians everywhere who have been lied about, who have been mocked, shunned, and persecuted, there is hope. That's the message of the church at Philadelphia. There is hope. That's Jesus' message to them, and that is his message to us. There is hope for us. Though this church has suffered persecution at the hands of the Jews, they had remained faithful. So the Lord comes to them and commends them for their faithfulness and encourages them to continue in their faithfulness. And this is where I want you to see that the overall message to the church at Philadelphia is this. God is more interested in our faithfulness than our worldly success. Let me say it again. God is more interested in your faithfulness than he is your worldly success. Are we faithful? 
Are we faithful? I pray that we will. So let's look at four truths today pertaining to this faithful church. One concerning Christ, two truths concerning the church, and then one that kind of mixes the church and Christ together and kind of adds them both. So truth number one, Christ is characterized by his awesomeness. Christ is characterized by his awesomeness. Just listen to verse 7 again. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. This is Jesus describing himself. And my prayer for us, my prayer over us this morning and and every day, is that we would have a big picture of Jesus. Meaning that God would deliver us from small thoughts concerning him. And would give us huge thoughts concerning him. Because here's what happens. When you have, or when I have small thoughts concerning Jesus or concerning God, my problems are really, really big. When, when my God is small, my problems are huge. When my Savior is small, my problems just, um, just take over. But when my God and my Savior are huge, my problems begin to take their rightful place. Because my problems take their place underneath His Lordship, underneath His rule, underneath His reign. You know, one of the great tragedies I believe that happens to us is that we, if we're not careful, we choose to see Jesus for who He was. And follow with me here. What I mean by that is sometimes we choose to see Jesus for who He was during His incarnation. We see Him as poor, as homeless, as marginalized, as a Galilean peasant, and that is who we see Him. Yet, let me just say very clearly, that's not who He presently is. That's not who he is. Every time Jesus introduces himself to one of the seven churches, he doesn't say, this is who I was. He says, this is who I am. This is who I am after my life on earth, after the, my, my death, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after my return to heaven. This is who I am. Jesus isn't just a concept. He's a person. He's not dead. He is absolutely alive. And Jesus, get this, is not in humility today. He is in glory. He is in glory. He's not a humble, marginalized, Galilean peasant. He is the ruling, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And he knows everything about everyone. And Jesus says to us, I am the Holy One. I'm the Holy One. I'm without sin. I'm without equal. The the idea is one of purity and one of separation. Jesus is separate from his creation because he's the creator. In the same way, Jesus is separate from sin because he is our savior. And Jesus is not just the best person who's ever lived, although he is absolutely that. Jesus is also in a category of one. So in all the people who ever lived, Jesus is in the category of one. Sinless one. Savior, Lord of all. That is who he is. Is And think about this. Think about the words of Isaiah 6. Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And I heard the seraphims, the burning ones, and they were crying aloud, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Get that picture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. His train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And then think of John 12. For in John 12, we are taught that what Isaiah saw was Jesus. 
Isaiah saw Jesus, the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. Holy, holy, holy. This is who he is. Don't miss it. He is the holy one. Jesus was holy at his birth. He was holy throughout his life. He was holy in his death. And he is holy upon his throne. He is the holy one. And not just holy, he's also the true one. Jesus says, I'm the holy one, I'm the true one. Meaning, if you have ever taken Jesus at his word, you have never done so in vain. If you ever will or ever have taken Jesus at his word, you will not do so in vain. Jesus will keep his word. For he is the true one. He's the true one. And then Jesus says this in verse 7. I have the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. And the picture here is this. Jesus isn't just so, or awesome in his sovereignty, which he is. He's also awesome in his salvation. For the door of salvation, according to Jesus, swings open and closes at his discretion. That's what he's saying. The key of David is the messianic key to those who come into the kingdom. And Jesus alone, we sang today about Adoption. We say today about chains being broken, about all those things that only Jesus can do. Meaning, get this, when Jesus opens the door unto salvation, there's nothing that anyone else can do about it. And here's the beauty. Muhammad has no control over this door. Buddha has no control over this door. No pope, no priest, no guru, no self-appointed leader can determine who walks through this door. This door belongs only to Jesus. And praise God, he shares his authority with no one. Salvation is unto him. In fact, when we get to John 10 and we read John 10, Jesus says, I'm the door. I am the door. If you want salvation, you enter through me. I am the way. Which all the, When we put all of those things together, it points to the fact that we serve an awesome Savior. And I think about it, Christ is characterized by his awesomeness. I mean, I sounded like a seventh grader in 1985, but I don't care. He is his awesomeness. He is absolutely awesome in all that he is. But then let's look at the second truth, which concerning the church, the church is commended for its activity. So the church is commended for its activity. Let's break down verse 8 together. Jesus begins by saying, I know your works. Jesus knows, or Jesus knew what was going on in the church then. He was paying attention. Let me say this. He is still paying attention to those on our ministry team at First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. Jesus knows your works. Thank you for what you do. For those who lead ministries all across this church, Jesus knows your works. Thank you for what you do. All of you who are serving with our children and youth and all other ages, those who are laboring behind the scenes, those who are laboring in a more public way, those who volunteer here throughout the week, those who are giving generously, those who are praying for your church, those who are paying attention, those who are sharing your faith, Jesus knows. He knows your works. And let me say this. Sometimes I know you don't get the... the the gratefulness and the gratitude that maybe you deserve. And, and that is probably one of my failures where I don't tell you enough how grateful I am for all that you do. But let me tell you something even better. You might not always get it from me and you might not always get it from other people, but right here you're getting it from Jesus. Jesus is saying to this faithful church, I know 
Nobody else might know, but I know. No one else might care, but I care. No one else might choose to see, but I see. Jesus knows where we are. He knows what we're doing. He knows how we're giving, how we're praying, how we're serving, how we're going. He knows. He knows every hair of our head, but he also knows every volunteer of our church. And he knows everything that we do for him. Let me just say this this morning, just so we can hear this. Not one thing, not one thing that you do for him will go unnoticed. It might by other people, but it will not by him. He will not miss a thing. Don't don't allow yourself to believe that he will. Jesus knows our works, and sometimes we're led to wonder whether our service to this church matters. And let me just say this, it does. It absolutely matters. Jesus cares for our church. Jesus cares for our leaders. Jesus cares for our people. Jesus cares for our mission. He knows our works. But in verse 8 says this, Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So this back to this concept. So sometimes doors, of course, are closed and, and locked and shut, and you can't get in. This past week, I, I, say to, I, don't want, I hate to admit it, but I locked myself out of my office. Um, how do you lock yourself out of your office? I did. And here's the worst part. My keys were all, all of my keys, even to my car were inside. So I had to break into my own office. It was terrible. Um, I MacGyvered everything. I wish you would have been here for it, but I'm glad you weren't. Although Misty and Morgan were on the phone with me while I was breaking into my own office. And was it classic? There we go. We'll leave it at that. But sometimes, of course, doors are closed before us. We can't get in. Other times, of course, they're open and we're able to pass through. But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm putting before you an open door that no one can shut. And here's the deal. Don't miss this. This is not the door of salvation we just talked about. This is a door of opportunity. Meaning this, it's a door between the culture that we live in and the kingdom of God. So between the culture of this world and the kingdom of God, Jesus has opened a door. And this door allows us to reach the world and it allows the world to meet our Savior. So between us and a dying world, there is a door of opportunity that Jesus has opened that we are able to go to the world. And through us going to the world, the world is able to come to our Savior. Let's not miss it. And again, listen, the critics can't shut this door. The false teachers can't shut this door. Judases who come into the church can't shut this door. People who come to church and only criticize can't shut this door. Through this door, the church goes to the lost. And through this door, the lost come to him. But let me also say this, and you know this. There are churches that we know that Jesus has shut the door on. We know there's churches that Jesus has absolutely shut the door on, whether it be because of rampant sin in the church or because the church refused to obey the mission of Christ. But for whatever reason, Jesus has closed the door. They are closed for business. Maybe not in their eyes. Maybe they're still meeting together, but in Jesus' eyes, they are closed. But there are also churches that continue on. Why? Because they continue to walk through the doorways that Jesus has opened. Oh, church, I pray that we would always walk through the doors of opportunities that Jesus has placed before us, not just for the sake of the world, but for our sake, so that he might continue to open the doors before us. You know, we spend so much time, if we're not careful, trying to beat down doors that we want God to open. 
God, this is a door I need you to open. And we try to, like I was on, on Tuesday or Wednesday, try to break in, trying to get in this door. And all the while, God is saying, if you look to the right, there's a door I've opened. It's a door that I want you to walk through right now. We can come back to that door later on, or maybe if you walk through this door, you realize that door wasn't as important as you think it is. But if we're not careful, we miss the doors that Christ has placed right before us. And then Jesus said this, I know that you have but little power. This church had little influence, especially in the eyes of the world. They were nothing. When the world thought power, the world didn't think about this church. And then Jesus said this, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You've kept my word and not denied my name. And there's a powerful picture here because on two different occasions, the the city of Philadelphia had changed their name for a time to honor two different Roman emperors. So they had changed their name, but Jesus is coming to the church at Philadelphia saying, you didn't change your name. You didn't deny my name. You stayed faithful to me and you kept my word. Oh, church, I pray that our activity would be that of walking through the doors that Jesus opens before us and that we would keep his word. And let me say this, if we, if we walk through the doors that Jesus opens for us and if we keep his word, that is success. Regardless of what the world says, that is success. So the church was absolutely commended for its activity, and I pray that we would be as well. And then the third truth is this, and this is where we mix the church and Christ. The church is comforted by Christ's affection. The church is comforted by Christ's affection, and don't miss it here. Verses 9 and 10, follow with me. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. And we've already dealt with this, of of people who were Jewish, they were born Jewish, and they said, we're the true Jews. And Jesus says, no, you're not, because you don't know me. You're not a true Jew because you've not bowed your knee to me. You're lying. And unfortunately, those, those who said they were true Jews were persecuting the church. And Jesus says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. We know according to Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here, Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I will make your enemies come and they will bow down before you. It's crazy. It's crazy what Jesus is saying here. I will make your enemies not bow down before me. I will make them bow down before you. But here's the ultimate purpose of them bowing down. Keep reading. It says this, and they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn that I have loved you. Brothers and sisters, we often struggle with our sense of identity, a failure to embrace our new identity and the privileges and responsibilities that Christ places before us. We struggle with that. And let me just say this, virtually every assault and every accusation of the enemy, so every assault of Satan, every accusation of Satan is grounded in his effort to convince us that we are not who God says we are. Don't miss that. So Satan spends most of his time trying to convince you and me that I or you are not who God says you are. And if Satan can do that, if Satan can convince us that we are not who God says we are, then victory is assured. But on the other hand, if we're able to rest securely in who Christ is and who we are in him, if we're able to have an identity that's forced by forgiveness and not failure, or by grace and not works, then no assault will prevail. No accusation will stand against us. And here's the beauty. To this church, the affection of our God will not forever remain hidden. 
You know, sometimes we think, we know, like in the back of our minds, for God so loved the world, so we know, you know, God loves us. But sometimes we wonder, man, God, I don't, I, how are you loving me through this? How is this love? And here's what Jesus is saying. There is coming a day where the world, all those who mocked you, all those who laughed at you, all those who said you are serving God in vain, will understand how much I have loved you. Do you feel that? Do you want that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Jesus loves us. He loves us. Do you know why the church continues? Do you know why the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way has existed for 92 years? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not because of our wisdom and power. It's not because all of the great leaders and great people that have come to this church. And it's not because it's been easy and there's been no resistance. No, the reason that we have survived for 92 years, get this, is because Jesus loves us. That, that is it. He loves us. Do you believe that Jesus loves our church? Oh, he does. Oh, he does. And to those who have been caught up in the love of our Savior, the question for us is this. And please hear this. Do you love what Jesus loves? Meaning, if we just said that Jesus loves the church, then do you? Do you love what Jesus loves? Do you love the church of Jesus Christ? Do you love what he loves? And I think it's a given that if you love him, then you should love what he loves. And let me just say this. Sometimes I don't believe I articulate this well enough, and I, I fell at this. Even last week, I was quick to point out that what we do here ultimately is not about us. It's ultimately about him. And I stand by that. But I, I pray to God that I never give you the impression that your needs don't matter. I pray that that is, that is not my heart. I pray that that is not the message that you're receiving from here. That who cares what I'm going through? Who cares um, about the pain that I'm experiencing? That, that is not my heart. I pray that that is not the, the picture here, that it doesn't matter what you're going through. And I pray that the picture here is it doesn't matter what other people are going through. Brothers and sisters, it matters what you're going through, and it matters what each of us are going through. Those things matter, but here's the point. If we matter to Christ, then shouldn't we matter to each other? If Jesus cares about our needs, shouldn't we care about the needs of others? If Jesus cares about this church, should we not love what he loves? Brothers and sisters, do you love what Jesus loves? Do you love the church of Jesus Christ? Do you love the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way? I pray that you do. And then Jesus says this to this church, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Let me just stop for a second. Listen to that phrase, patient endurance. I mean, that is a hard phrase. Patient endurance. Two things we're not good at. Let me say it again. Two things that we're terrible at. Being patient and enduring. And Jesus puts those together. Patient endurance. And Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And here's the question. How will the Philadelphian Christians be protected from the hour of trial? And there are those who use this verse as evidence of the pre-tribulation rapture in which God will remove the saints out of this world and then the tribulation will come. Others believe that this is a reference to um, tribulations which began in the first century, even before that, and will continue on throughout the church age 
Now, we're not going to jump into that today because that will come up in a couple weeks and we'll, we'll kind of address that, but here's what I want to highlight. Christians are not exempt from suffering in this life. That's what I want to highlight. Christians, we are not exempt from suffering. Sometimes we, we give this message out to the world that, hey, just come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. It's like, do you, do you understand that when we come to Jesus, we not only get a Savior, we get, for the, really the first time, an enemy? Like, Satan's not messing with us when we're on his team. He's like, keep going, you're doing awesome. But when we all of a sudden come to Christ, we get Satan's attention. And all of a sudden, for the really first time, we get an enemy like never before. But here's the problem. Sometimes we believe that what God has promised us is earthly rest and earthly peace when the reality is here's what Jesus has promised us, spiritual rest and eternal peace. Let me, let me kind of frame it in a, in a different way. The most important issue that we face is not physical protection from temporary issues or temporary problems. The most important issue that we face is spiritual protection from eternal wrath. And the Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus took the cup, he drank every last drop, he turned it over, and he said, it is finished. He experienced the wrath of God so that we will never have to experience his wrath because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we understand the beauty of that. We are exempt from the wrath of God, which is coming. But there will be trials and there will be tribulations. In fact, Jesus even said to the disciples in this world, you will have troubles. So don't, sometimes, let me, this is not in my notes, but let me just say this. There are Christians that we get mad at God for, doing, for not doing for us what he never promised to do. We get mad and we pout with God because God isn't doing for us what we think he should do, even though God never promised that he would. God never promised we would walk through life and have zero difficulties, but he did promise he would walk through us or with us through every difficulty. And instead of pouting with God and saying, God, I can't believe I'm walking through this, why don't we say, God, show me your presence because you said you would be with me. Show me where you are in this because I know you're here. Because your word says you're here. Show me where you are. And through it all, brothers and sisters, don't miss the affection of your Savior. Don't miss his affection. He loves you. He loves his church. Which leads us to the last point, the last truth, which is this. The church is called to an attainment. The church is called to an attainment. We are called to hold on to something. It's interesting that this church has more promises given to it by Jesus than any other church. And just follow with me. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Let me, let me pause there. Some people have said, well, how can Jesus say 2,000 years ago, I'm coming soon, and he still hasn't come? How can we believe him? And here's what, here's what I would say to that. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, I'm coming soon, I'm coming tomorrow. What he's saying is this, when I come, it's going to be soon. When I come, it's going to be imminent. When I, when I come, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. It's kind of what he had already said in the Gospels. When I come, it's going to be quick. And then Jesus says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus is saying, don't forfeit. Don't forfeit what you have. Don't forfeit what you've held on for. Don't let it go. And then verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Oftentimes, the only, the only parts of the city that would be left after a severe earthquake would be the pillars of the temple. They'd be the only things that would remain standing once the temple had been, or the city had been destroyed by an earthquake. And what Jesus is saying is this, to be a pillar of Christ puts us in a position, get this, of security. 
Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring you in, and you're going to be a pillar in my temple, and you are going to be secure. You are secure. I think of the words of Paul in Romans 8, where Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Jesus says this in verse 12, Never shall he go out of it. We will be pillars in his temple. And Jesus says you'll never have to go out. And he was saying this to a city that had encountered earthquakes by which um, forced them to leave their homes and to go into the countryside and establish temporary dwellings there. And Jesus is promising them, don't miss this, you'll never have to flee again. You'll never have to flee again. And that took on a whole new meaning this week because you know what it means to me? There is coming a day in his presence where I won't have to, I don't have, I won't have to flee from sin anymore. I, don't want, I won't have to flee from hurt or pain or difficulty. I won't have to try to run away from difficult conversations because they're hard. All of those things will be gone. Sin will be no more. Pain will be no more. Death will be no more. We won't have to flee those things ever again. Isn't that good news for us? It's good news. We won't have to flee. And then let's finish in verse 12. And this is when it really gets good. And I will write on him. So the overcomer, the one who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Here is your ultimate destiny if you know Christ. Just look at it on the screen. Let me just break it down for you. It consists of us having inscribed on our hearts the name of God, the name of his city, and the name of his son. The point is this. Those whom God has redeemed will be named by him and will be claimed by him. And here's the point for us. All the old names won't matter anymore. The old names won't matter. In that great day, the blood of Jesus Christ will wash all the tags that we carry around, all the things that we have done, all the things that people know us for. And the blood of Christ will wash all of those things away. Everything you've ever been known for. And here's the, here's the amazing truth. In his presence, the good things won't matter and the bad things won't be remembered. The good things won't matter and the bad things won't be remembered. We will stand on the same level ground, saved, redeemed, renewed, and renamed by our Lord. And you might be thinking, well, I like my old name. Well, your old name's attached to sinfulness, and Jesus has a better name. He has a better name to give to us, unstained and untainted from this world. Brothers and sisters, that's every reason for us to be faithful to the end. I want to end our time together with the words of Oswald Chambers. And maybe we are familiar with him from his devotion, my utmost for his highest. But these are his words and then kind of a call to faithfulness for us. Listen to what he says. It is only a faithful person who truly believes that God sovereignly controls his circumstances. We take our circumstances for granted saying God is in control, but not really believing it. We act as if the things that happened were completely controlled by people. To be faithful in every circumstance means that we have only one loyalty or object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being faithful to Jesus Christ is the most difficult thing we try to do today. Let me say it again. 
Being faithful to Jesus Christ is the most difficult thing we try to do today. Our Lord is dethroned more deliberately by Christian workers than by the world. We treat God as if he were a machine designed only to bless us, and we think of Jesus as just another one of the workers. The goal of faithfulness is not that we will do work for God, but that he will be free to do his work through us. God calls us to his service and places tremendous responsibilities on us. And hear this, he expects no complaining on our part. Let me say this again to you Baptists at heart. He expects no complaining on our part and he offers no explanation on his part. God wants to use us as he used his own son. Oh, may God, through his power, through his spirit, make us faithful. As we submit to him, may we become a faithful church who loves him, and may we love what he loves. May we love each other. May we love each other even more. May we lock arms even more fervently. And may we look for open doors of opportunity that God is opening. It it might even mean us throw the crowbar down of the doors you're trying to pry open, throw the crowbars down and and look around and ask God to show you the doors that he's already opened around you and ask him for the ability, ask him for the strength, ask him for the faith to walk through those doors, whatever they are. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to call the musicians forward and enter into a time of invocation, a time of consecration where we bring all this together. And let's pray. Father, as we In this time together, we do so, Lord, surrounded by the testimony of a faithful church. And God, our prayer, our cry, Lord, is make us, Lord, a faithful church. Ultimately, Lord, faithful to you. Faithful to your ways. Faithful, God, to your mission. Faithful to the doors that you are opening. While at the same time, God, help us to be faithful to each other, to love, God, what you love. Your word tells us, Lord, you love your glory. Help us to love your glory. Help us to love each other. Help us to love our world. To love what you love, oh God. Lord, I just pray, Father, for brothers and sisters across this room. Who even right now, Satan is trying to convince us that we are not who you say we are. Lord, help us, God, even in this moment. To by faith, Lord, believe who you say we are. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. We're yours. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're eternally secure. We thank you for who you say we are and so much more finish this time. Holy Spirit, finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.